Section one of Celebrated Crimes, Volume four, Part three. Nisida. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Celebrated Crimes, Volume four, Part three. Nisida by Alexandre Dumas. Translated by George Burnham Ives. Nisida, eighteen twenty five. If our readers, tempted by the Italian proverb about seeing Naples and then dying, were to ask us what is the most favorable moment for visiting the enchanted city, we should advise them to land at the Mole or at Megilina on a fine summer day and at the hour when some solemn procession is moving out of the cathedral. Nothing can give an idea of the profound and simple-hearted emotion of this populace, which has enough poetry in its soul to believe in its own happiness. The whole town adorns herself and attires herself like a bride for her wedding. The dark facades of marble and granite disappear beneath hangings of silk and festoons of flowers. The wealthy display their dazzling luxury, the poor drape themselves proudly in their rags. Everything is light, harmony, and perfume. The sound is like the hum of an immense hive, interrupted by a thousandfold outcry of joy impossible to describe. The bells repeat their sonorous sequences in every key. The arcades echo afar with the triumphal marches of military bands. The sellers of sherbet and watermelons sing out their deafening flourish from throats of copper. People form into groups. They meet, question, gesticulate. There are gleaming looks, eloquent gestures, picturesque attitudes. There is a general animation, an unknown charm, an indefinable intoxication. Earth is very near to heaven, and it is easy to understand that, if God were to banish death from this delightful spot, the Neapolitans would desire no other paradise. The story that we are about to tell opens with one of these magical pictures. It was the day of the Assumption in the year 1825. The sun had been up some four or five hours, and the long Via de Forcella, lighted from end to end by its slanting rays, cut the town in two like a ribbon of watered silk. The lava pavement, carefully cleaned, shone like any mosaic, and the royal troops, with their proudly waving plumes, made a double living hedge on each side of the street. The balconies, windows, and terraces, the stands with their unsubstantial balustrades, and the wooden galleries set up during the night were loaded with spectators, and looked not unlike the boxes of a theater. An immense crowd, forming a medley of the brightest colors, invaded the reserved space and broke through the military barriers here and there like an overflowing torrent. These intrepid sightseers, nailed to their places, would have waited half their lives without giving the least sign of impatience. At last, about noon, a cannon-shot was heard, and a cry of general satisfaction followed it. It was the signal that the procession had crossed the threshold of the church. In the same moment a charge of carabineers swept off the people who were obstructing the middle of the street. The regiments of the line opened floodgates for the overflowing crowd, and soon nothing remained on the causeway but some scared dog, shouted at by the people, hunted off by the soldiers, and fleeing at full speed. The procession came out through the Via de Vescovato. First came the guilds of merchants and craftsmen, the hatters, weavers, bakers, butchers, cutlers, and goldsmiths. They wore the prescribed dress, black coats, knee-breeches, low shoes, and silver buckles. As the countenances of these gentlemen offered nothing very interesting to the multitude, whisperings arose, little by little, among the spectators. Then some bold spirits ventured a jest or two upon the fattest or the baldest of the townsmen, and at last the boldest of the Lazzaroni slipped between the soldiers' legs to collect the wax that was running down from the lighted tapers. After the craftsmen, the religious orders marched past, from the Dominicans to the Carthusians, from the Carmelites to the Capuchins. 
They advanced slowly, their eyes cast down, their step austere, their hands on their hearts. Some faces were rubicund and shining, with large cheekbones and rounded chins, Herculean heads upon bullnecks. Some thin and livid, with cheeks hollowed by suffering and penitence, and with the look of living ghosts. In short, here were the two sides of monastic life. At this moment, Nunziata and Gelsamina, two charming damsels, taking advantage of an old corporal's politeness, pushed forward their pretty heads into the first rank. The break in the line was conspicuous, but the sly warrior seemed just a little lax in the matter of discipline. "'Oh, there is Father Bruno,' said Gelsamina suddenly. "'Good day, Father Bruno.' "'Hush, cousin. People do not talk to the procession.' "'How absurd! He is my confessor. May I not say good morning to my confessor?' silence chatterboxes who was that spoke oh my dear it was brother cocuzza the begging friar where is he where is he there he is along there laughing into his beard how bold he is ah god in heaven if we were to dream of him while the two cousins were pouring out endless comments upon the capuchins and their beards the capes of the cannons, and the surplices of the seminarists. The Farocci came running across from the other side to re-establish order, with the help of their gun-stocks. "'By the blood of my patron saint!' cried a stentorian voice. "'If I catch you between my finger and thumb, I will straighten your back for the rest of your days.' "'Who are you falling out with, Gennaro?' Oh, "'With this accursed hunchback, who has been worrying my back for the last hour, as though he could see through it!' "'It's a shame,' returned the hunchback in a tone of lamentation. "'I have been here since last night. I slept out of doors to keep my place, and here is this abominable giant comes to stick himself in front of me like an obelisk.' The hunchback was lying like a Jew, but the crowd rose unanimously against the obelisk. He was in one way their superior, and majorities are always made up of pygmies. "'Hi! Come down from your stand!' hi get off your pedestal off with your hat down with your head sit down lie down this revival of curiosity expressing itself in invectives evidently betokened the crisis of the show and indeed the chapters of canons the clergy and bishops the pages and chamberlains the representatives of the city and the gentlemen of the king's chamber now appeared and finally the king himself who bareheaded and carrying a taper followed the magnificent statue of the virgin the contrast was striking. After the gray-headed monks and pale novices came brilliant young captains, affronting heaven with the points of their mustaches, riddling the latticed windows with killing glances, following the procession in an absent-minded way, and interrupting the holy hymns with scraps of most unorthodox conversation. "'Did you notice, my dear Doria, how like a monkey the old Marchesa d'Aquasparta had takes her raspberry?' "'Her nose takes the color of the ice.' What fine bird is showing off to her? It is the Serenian. I beg your pardon. I have not seen that name in the Golden Book. He helps the poor Marquis to bear his cross. The officer's profane allusion was lost in the prolonged murmur of admiration that suddenly arose from the crowd, and every gaze was turned upon one of the young girls who was strewing flowers before the Holy Madonna. She was an exquisite creature her head glowing in the sunshine, her feet hidden amid roses and broom-blossom. She rose, tall and fair, from a pale cloud of incense, like some seraphic apparition. 
Her hair of velvet blackness fell in curls halfway down her shoulders. Her brow, white as alabaster and polished as a mirror, reflected the rays of the sun. Her beautiful and finely arched black eyebrows melted into the opal of her temples. Her eyelids were fast down, and the curled black fringe of lashes veiled a glowing and liquid glance of divine emotion. The nose, straight, slender, and cut by two easy nostrils, gave to her profile that character of antique beauty which is vanishing day by day from the earth. A calm and serene smile, one of those smiles that have already left the soul and not yet reached the lips, lifted the corners of her mouth with a pure expression of infinite beatitude and gentleness. Nothing could be more perfect than the chin that completed the faultless oval of this radiant countenance, her neck of a dead white joined her bosom in a delicious curve, and supported her head gracefully like the stalk of a flower moved by a gentle breeze. A bodice of crimson velvet spotted with gold outlined her delicate and finely curved figure, and held in by means of a handsome gold lace the countless folds of a full and flowing skirt that fell to her feet like those severe robes in which the Byzantine painters preferred to drape their angels. She was indeed a marvel, and so rare and modest a beauty had not been seen within the memory of man." Among those who had gazed most persistently at her was observed the young prince of Brancaleone, one of the foremost nobles of the kingdom. Handsome, rich, and brave, he had at five-and-twenty outdone the lists of all known Don Juans. Fashionable young women spoke very ill of him, and adored him in secret. The most virtuous made it their rule to fly from him, so impossible did resistance appear. All the young madcaps had chosen him for their model, for his triumphs robbed many a Miltiades of sleep and with better cause. In short, to get an idea of this lucky individual, it will be enough to know that as a seducer he was the most perfect thing that the devil had succeeded in inventing in his progressive century. The prince was dressed out for the occasion in a sufficiently grotesque costume, which he wore with ironic gravity and cavalier ease. A black satin doublet, knee-breeches, embroidered stockings, and shoes with gold buckles formed the main portions of his dress over which trailed a long, brocaded, open-sleeved robe lined with their mien, and a magnificent diamond-hilted sword. On account of his rank he enjoyed the rare distinction of carrying one of the six gilded staves that supported the plumed and embroidered canopy. As soon as the procession moved on again, Eligia Branchialoni gave a side-glance to a little man as red as a lobster, who was walking almost at his side and carrying in his right hand, with all the solemnity that he could muster, his excellency's hat. He was a footman in gold-lace livery, and we beg leave to give a brief sketch of his history. Trespolo was the child of poor but thieving parents, and on that account was early left an orphan. Being at leisure, he studied life from an eminently social aspect. If we are to believe a certain ancient sage, we are all in the world to solve a problem. As to Trespolo, he desired to live without doing anything. That was his problem. He was in turn a sacristan, a juggler, an apothecary's assistant, and a ciceroni, and he got tired of all these callings. Begging was, to his mind, too hard work, and it was more trouble to be a thief than to be an honest man. Finally, he decided in favor of contemplative philosophy. He had a passionate preference for the horizontal position, and found the greatest pleasure in the world in watching the shooting of stars. Unfortunately, in the course of his meditations, this deserving man came near to dying of hunger which would have been a great pity, for he was beginning to accustom himself not to eat anything. But as he was predestined by nature to play a small part in our story, God showed him grace for that time, and sent to his assistance, not one of his angels, oh, the rogue was not worthy of that, but one of Branchialoni's hunting dogs. 
The noble animal sniffed round the philosopher and uttered a little charitable growl that would have done credit to one of the brethren of Mount St. Bernard. The prince, who was returning in triumph from hunting, and who by good luck had that day killed a bear and ruined a countess, had an odd inclination to do a good deed. He approached the plebeian, who was about to pass into the condition of a corpse, stirred the thing with his foot, and seeing that there was still a little hope, bade his people bring him along. From that day onward, Trespolo saw the dream of his life nearly realized. Something rather above a footman and rather below a house steward, he became the confidant of his master, who found his talents most useful. For this Trespolo was as sharp as a demon and almost as artful as a woman. The prince, who, like an intelligent man as he was, had divined that geniuses naturally indolent, asked nothing of him but advice. When tiresome people wanted thrashing, he saw to that matter himself, and indeed he was the equal of any two at such work. As nothing in this lower world, however, is complete, Trespolo had strange moments amid this life of delights. From time to time his happiness was disturbed by panics that greatly diverted his master. He would mutter incoherent words, stifle violent sighs, and lose his appetite. The root of the matter was that the poor fellow was afraid of going to hell. The matter was very simple. He was afraid of everything. And besides, it had often been preached to him that the devil never allowed a moment's rest to those who were ill-advised enough to fall into his clutches. Trespolo was in one of his good moods of repentance, when the prince, after gazing on the young girl with the fierce eagerness of a vulture about to swoop upon its prey, turned to speak to his intimate adviser. The poor servant understood his master's abominable design, and not wishing to share the guilt of a sacrilegious conversation, opened his eyes very wide and turned them up to heaven in ecstatic contemplation. The prince coughed, stamped his foot, moved his sword so as to hit Trespolo's legs, but could not get from him any sign of attention, so absorbed did he appear in celestial thoughts. Brancaleone would have liked to wring his neck, but both his hands were occupied by the staff of the canopy, and, besides, the king was present. At last they were drawing nearer to the church of St. Clara, where the Neapolitan kings were buried, and where several princesses of the blood, exchanging the crown for the veil, have gone to bury themselves alive. The nuns, novices, and abbess, hidden behind shutters, were throwing flowers upon the procession. A bunch fell at the feet of the prince of Brancaleone, Trespolo, pick up that nosegay, said the prince, so audibly that his servant had no further excuse. It is from Sister Teresa, he added in a low voice. Constancy is only to be found nowadays in a convent. Trespolo picked up the nosegay and came towards his master, looking like a man who was being strangled. Who is that girl? the latter asked him shortly. W which one? stammered the servant. Forsooth! the one walking in front of us. I don't know her, my lord. You must find out something about her before this evening. I shall have to go rather far afield. Then you do know her, you intolerable rascal. I have half a mind to have you hanged like a dog. For pity's sake, my lord, think of the salvation of your soul, of your eternal life. I advise you to think of your temporal life. What is her name? She is called Nisida, and is the prettiest girl in the island that she is named after. She is innocence itself. Her father is only a poor fisherman, but I can assure your excellency that in his island he is respected like a king. Indeed, replied the prince with an ironical smile. I must own to my great shame that I have never visited the little island of Nisida. 
you will have a boat ready for me to-morrow and then we will see he interrupted himself suddenly for the king was looking at him and calling up the most sonorous bass notes that he could find in the depths of his throat he continued with an inspired air genitori genitoque laoset jubilatio amen replied the serving-man in a ringing voice nisida the beloved daughter of solomon the fisherman was as we have said the loveliest flower of the island from which she derived her name that island is the most charming spot the most delicious nook with which we are acquainted it is a basket of greenery set delicately amid the pure and transparent waters of the gulf a hill wooded with orange trees and oleanders and crowned at the summit by a marble castle all around extends the fairy-like prospect of that immense amphitheatre one of the mightiest wonders of creation there lies naples the voluptuous siren reclining carelessly on the seashore there portici castellamare and sorrento the very names of which awaken in the imagination a thousand thoughts of poetry and love there are pausilippo baie puazzoli and those vast plains where the ancients fancied their elysium sacred solitudes which one might suppose peopled by the men of former days where the earth echoes underfoot like an empty grave and the air has unknown sounds and strange melodies solomon's hut stood in that part of the island which turning its back to the capital beholds afar the blue crests of capri nothing could be simpler or brighter the brick walls were hung with ivy greener than emeralds and enameled with white bell-flowers on the ground floor was a fairly spacious apartment in which the men slept and the family took their meals on the floor above was nisida's little maidenly room full of coolness shadows and mystery and lighted by a single casement that looked over the gulf above this room was a terrace of the italian kind the four pillars of which were wreathed with vine branches while its vine-clad arbor and wide parapet were overgrown with moss and wild flowers a little hedge of hawthorn which had been respected for ages made a kind of rampart around the fisherman's premises and defended his house better than deep moats and castellated walls could have done the boldest roisterers of the place would have preferred to fight before the parsonage and in the precincts of the church rather than in front of solomon's little enclosure otherwise this was the meeting-place of the whole island every evening precisely at the same hour the good women of the neighborhood came to knit their woolen caps and tell the news groups of little children naked brown and as mischievous as little imps sported about rolling on the grass and throwing handfuls of sand into the other's eyes heedless of the risk of blinding while the mothers were engrossed in that grave gossip which marks the dwellers in villages these gatherings occurred daily before the fisherman's house they formed a tacit and almost involuntary homage consecrated by custom and of which no one had ever taken special account the envy that rules in small communities would soon have suppressed them the influence which old solomon had over his equals had grown so simply and naturally that no one found any fault with it and it had only attracted notice when every one was benefiting by it like those fine trees whose growth is only observed when we profit by their shade if any dispute arose in the island the two opponents preferred to abide by the judgment of the fisherman instead of going before the court he was fortunate enough or clever enough to send away both parties satisfied he knew what remedies to prescribe better than any physician for it seldom happened that he or his had felt the same ailments and his knowledge founded on personal experience produced the most excellent results moreover he had no interest as ordinary doctors have in prolonging illnesses 
for many years past the only formality recognized as a guarantee for the inviolability of a contract had been the intervention of the fishermen each party shook hands with solomon and the thing was done they would rather have thrown themselves into vesuvius at the moment of its most violent eruption than have broken so solemn an agreement at the period when our story opens it was impossible to find any person in the island who had not felt the effects of the fisherman's generosity and that without needing to confess to him any necessities as it was the custom for the little populace of nisida to spend its leisure hours before solomon's cottage the old man while he walked slowly among the different groups humming his favorite song discovered moral and physical weaknesses as he passed and the same evening he or his daughter would certainly be seen coming mysteriously to bestow a benefit upon every sufferer to lay a balm upon every wound in short he united in his person all those occupations whose business is to help mankind lawyers doctors and the notary all the vultures of civilization had beaten a retreat before the patriarchal benevolence of the fishermen even the priest had capitulated on the morrow of the feast of the assumption solomon was sitting as his habit was on a stone bench in front of his house his legs crossed and his arms carelessly stretched out at the first glance you would have taken him for sixty at the outside though he was really over eighty he had all his teeth which were as white as pearls and showed them proudly his brow calm and restful beneath its crown of abundant white hair was as firm and polished as marble not a wrinkle ruffled the corner of his eye and the gem-like lustre of his blue orbs revealed a freshness of soul and an eternal youth such as fable grants to the sea-gods he displayed his bare arms and muscular neck with an old man's vanity never had a gloomy idea an evil prepossession or a keen remorse arisen to disturb his long and peaceful life he had never seen a tear flow near him without hurrying to wipe it poor though he was he had succeeded in pouring out benefits that all the kings of the earth could not have bought with their gold ignorant though he was he had spoken to his fellows the only language that they could understand the language of the heart one single drop of bitterness had mingled with his inexhaustible stream of happiness one grief only had clouded his sunny life the death of his wife and moreover he had forgotten that all the affections of his soul were turned upon nisida whose birth had caused her mother's death he loved her with that immoderate love that old people have for the youngest of their children at the present moment he was gazing upon her with an air of profound rapture and watching her come and go as she now joined the groups of children and scolded them for games too dangerous or too noisy now seated herself on the grass beside their mothers and took part with grave and thoughtful interest in their talk nisida was more beautiful thus than she had been the day before with the vaporous cloud of perfume that had folded her round from head to foot had disappeared all that mystical poetry which put a sort of constraint upon her admirers and obliged them to lower their glances she had become a daughter of eve again without losing anything of her charm simply dressed as she usually was on workdays she was distinguishable among her companions only by her amazing beauty and by the dazzling whiteness of her skin her beautiful black hair was twisted in plaits around the little dagger of chased silver that has lately been imported to paris by that right of conquest which the pretty women of paris have over the fashions of all countries like the english over the sea nisida was adored by her young friends all the mothers had adopted her with pride she was the glory of the island the opinion of her superiority was shared by every one to such a degree that if some bold young man forgetting the distance which divided him from the maiden dared to speak a little too loudly of his pretensions he became the laughing-stock of his companions 
even the past masters of tarantella dancing were out of countenance before the daughter of solomon and did not dare to seek her as a partner only a few singers from amalfi or sorrento attracted by the rare beauty of this angelic creature ventured to sigh out their passions carefully veiled beneath the most delicate illusions but they seldom reached the last verse of their song at every sound they stopped short threw down their triangles and their mandolins and took flight like scared nightingales one only had courage enough or passion enough to brave the mockery this was bastiano the most formidable diver of that coast he also sang but with a deep and hollow voice his chant was mournful and his melodies full of sadness he never accompanied himself upon any instrument and never retired without concluding his song that day he was gloomier than usual he was standing upright as though by enchantment upon a bare and slippery rock and he cast scornful glances upon the women who were looking at him and laughing the sun which was plunging into the sea like a globe of fire shed its light full upon his stern features and the evening breeze as it lightly rippled the billows set the fluttering reeds waving at his feet absorbed by dark thoughts he sang in the musical language of his country these sad words o window that wert used to shine in the night like an open eye how dark thou art alas alas my poor sister is ill her mother all in tears stoops towards me and says thy poor sister is dead and buried jesus jesus have pity on me you stab me to the heart tell me good neighbors how it happened repeat to me her last words she had a burning thirst and refused to drink because thou wast not there to give her water from thy hand oh my sister oh my sister she refused her mother's kiss because thou wast not there to embrace her oh my sister oh my sister she wept until her last breath because thou wast not there to dry her tears oh my sister oh my sister we placed on her brow her wreath of orange flowers we covered her with a veil as white as snow we laid her gently in her coffin thanks good neighbors i will go and be with her two angels came down from heaven and bore her away on their wings mary magdalene came to meet her at the gate of heaven thanks good neighbors i will go and be with her there she was seated in a place of glory a chaplet of rubies was given to her and she is singing her rosary with the virgin thanks good neighbors i will go and be with her and as he finished the last words of his melancholy refrain he flung himself from the top of his rock into the sea as though he really desired to engulf himself nisida and the other women gave a cry of terror for during some minutes the diver failed to reappear upon the surface are you out of your senses cried a young man who had suddenly appeared unobserved among the women why what are you afraid of you know very well that bastiano is always doing things of this sort but do not be alarmed all the fishes in the mediterranean will be drowned before any harm comes to him water is his natural element good day sister good day father the young fisherman kissed nisida on the forehead drew near to his father and bowing his handsome head before him took off his red cap and respectfully kissed the old man's hand he came thus to ask his blessing every evening before putting out the sea where he often spent the night fishing from his boat may god bless thee my gabriel said the old man in a tone of emotion as he slowly passed his hand over his son's black curls and a tear came to his eye then rising solemnly and addressing the groups around him he added in a voice full of dignity and of gentleness come my children it is time to separate the young to work the old to rest 
there is the angelus ringing everybody knelt and after a short prayer each went on his way nisida after having given her father the last daily attentions went up to her room replenished the oil in the lamp that burned day and night before the virgin and leaning her elbow on the window ledge divided the branches of jasmine which hung like perfumed curtains began to gaze out at the sea and seemed lost in a deep sweet reverie at this very time a little boat rowed silently by two oarsmen touched shore on the other side of the island it had become quite dark a little man first landed cautiously and respectfully offered his hand to another individual who scorning that feeble support leapt easily ashore well knave he cried are my looks to your taste your lordship is perfect i flatter myself i am it is true that in order to make the transformation complete i chose the very oldest coat that displayed its rags in a jew's shop your lordship looks like a heathen god engaged in a love affair jupiter has sheathed his thunderbolts and apollo has pocketed his rays a truce to your mythology and to begin with i forbid you to call me your lordship yes your lordship if my information that i have procured during the day is correct the house must be on the other side of the island in a most remote and lonely spot walk at a certain distance and do not trouble yourself about me for i know my part by heart the young prince of Brancaleone, whom in spite of the darkness of the night our readers will already have recognized advanced toward the fisherman's house with as little noise as possible walked up and down several times upon the shore and after having briefly reconnoitred the place that he wished to attack waited quietly for the moon to rise and light up the scene that he had prepared he was not obliged to exercise his patience very long for the darkness gradually disappeared and solomon's little house was bathed in silvery light then he approached with timid steps lifted towards the casement a look of entreaty and began to sigh with all the power of his lungs the young girl called suddenly from her meditations by the appearance of this strange person raised herself sharply and prepared to close the shutters stay charming nisida cried the prince in the manner of a man overcome by irresistible passion what do you want with me signor answered the maiden amazed to hear herself called by name to adore you as a madonna is adored and to make you aware of my sighs nisida looked at him steadily and after a moment or two of reflection asked suddenly as though in response to some secret thought do you belong to this country or are you a foreigner i arrived in this island replied the prince without hesitation at the moment when the sun was writing his farewell to the earth and dipping the rays that serves as his pen into the shadow that serves as his inkstand and who are you returned the young girl not at all understanding these strange words alas i am but a poor student but i may become a great poet like tasso whose verses you often hear sung by a departing fisherman who sends his thrilling music as a last farewell that returns to die on the beach i do not know whether i am doing wrong to speak to you but at least i will be frank with you said nisida blushing i have the misfortune to be the richest girl on the island your father will not be inexorable returned the prince ardently one word from you light of my eyes goddess of my heart and i will work night and day never pausing nor slackening and will render myself worthy to possess the treasure that god has revealed to my dazzled eyes and from being poor and obscure as you see me i will become rich and powerful 
I have stayed too long listening to talk that a maiden should not hear. Permit me, signor, to withdraw. Have pity on me, my cruel enemy. What have I done to you that you should thus leave me with death in my soul? You do not know that for months past I have been following you everywhere like a shadow, that I prowl round your home at night, stifling my sighs lest they should disturb your peaceful slumber. You are afraid, perhaps, to let yourself be touched, at a first meeting by a poor wretch who adores you. Alas! Juliet was young and beautiful like you, and she did not need many entreaties to take pity on Romeo. Nisida suffered a sad and thoughtful look to fall upon this handsome young man, who spoke to her in so gentle a voice, and withdrew without further reply that she might not humiliate his poverty. The prince made great efforts to suppress a strong inclination towards laughter, and, very well satisfied with this opening, turned his step toward the spot where he had left his servant. Trespolo, after having emptied a bottle of lacrima, with which he had provided himself for any emergency, had looked long around him to choose a spot where the grass was especially high and thick, and had laid himself down to a sound sleep, murmuring as he did so this sublime observation. "'Oh, laziness! But for the sin of Adam you would be a virtue!' End of section one. Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia.